0: Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 542, The State of German Football with Raphael Konigstein. big chillians welcome back to the big chill podcast i'm frank as always with eddie eddie how's it going
1: yeah no i'm in i'm enjoying my time you know the start of the masters i get to be a tv patron for a few days and <laughs> I, I, I just love that nice
0: yep yeah the pretentiousness of the masters nothing nothing better <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a, an event like no other
1: or whatever it is that yep. <laughs>
0: event like no other is it
1: yeah, it's. I I mean I like there's there's parts of it that I obviously really enjoy the history and the prestige and and some of the customs, but it, it, it's just a little bit overboard at times. Yeah. Like, well, I, I like the no. I like the no cell phone rule. I think a lot of sporting events could benefit from a no cell phone, no camera rule, and just having people See. be present in the moment. But.
0: I I like it from some aspects. So I like the fact that you can't take any videos and just hold your phone up. And like when, you know, Tiger's in the rough, there's not 500 people surrounding him with just their phones out, not even paying attention. But as someone who has gone to golf events a few times this year, it can get a little boring when you're there for five, six, seven hours. And occasionally you might just want to check your phone and make sure you don't have any important emails or text messages you need to respond to. So that part of it is a little ridiculous. Um, but I understand, I guess if, if the, if you told me you could take away all of the idiots that constantly just film for five hours and it meant that I couldn't answer an email, I'd probably make that trade off. Also,
1: just think about how much people must live for the ability to set an out of office auto auto reply of i'll get back to you next week i'm at augusta there you know people yeah. and setting that not even say of the
0: office. masters just oh, say yeah, I'm, I'm at augusta,
1: at augusta national.
0: national yes yeah. yeah
1: currently currently chowing down on a whatever that cheese sandwich is that they all lose their minds for a
0: a dollar 50 pimento cheese sandwich. And that's the other thing. I think this is the other aspect of the masters that bothers me is they have, we've talked about before, but their food that they sell on the course is very, very cheap. So most sandwiches are anywhere from, I think a dollar 50 to $4. A beer is only $5. A drink is a soda is like two or $3, like a normal price. That's great. But when you're paying about $750 to get into the event, I think uh, it should uh, be uh, free food at that point. <laughs>
1: like- well, I, their argument would be that's the secondary market, right? Because the, the ticket to the Masters itself is pretty cheap if you get it through the proper channels. But yeah, the resale market, I mean, there are people paying upwards of sort of $4,000 a day this year for tickets. That might change when the rain comes. I think shifting those tickets for Saturday and Sunday, if it's a torrential downpour might be a little bit tougher, but yeah, it's, they would probably argue that like face value, everything's a bit more affordable than most other major sporting events.
0: I mean, I put one small bet on Max Homa to win. So that's thrown out the window as soon as I put that down. But I mean, all I hope is that on Sunday, it's a good finish and you get to watch an exciting two, three hours of golf because when, you have a breakaway winner while it is exciting that they're playing so well and they're so phenomenally ahead of everyone. It really doesn't make for great viewing. So uh, that's all I really hope for.
1: That's why I also look forward to the prospect of bad weather on the Sunday as well, because that increases the possibility of someone having a bad hole. And I also think that's better because it's also kind of dull when it's, well, he's got a one-shot lead, but realistically – Parring the final two holes should be pretty easy. Might even sneak a birdie. When you know, hey, these weather conditions mean that even if I just need a par, even if I just need a bogey on the 18th, I could conceivably mess this up. That's always better. I I never get, I know you're not a bad weather football fan. I never understand the people who complain about bad weather in golf when you're watching professionals i don't want to go out and play around in a torrential downpour but i'm not so i'm not some golf purist who's like i need to see the very best shots all the time otherwise it's not enjoyable
0: i'll just no comment that i guess then <laughs> maybe you should uh introduce our interview as well eddie we didn't mention that it's true the podcast.
1: it's true yeah coming up we have a really great interview with uh, rafael honigstein who is uh a journalist and author. He currently writes for The Atlantic. He's also has he's the co-host of his own podcast. And now we had a really interesting discussion about Bayern Munich, the Bundesliga overall, Jürgen Klopp, the German national team. So really just got some great expertise and insights into the the state of, of German football. And you know it's nice when we're able to we obviously like to have opinions on most things most of the time but it's nice to get some some real specialist expertise on to discuss topics in in finer detail
0: yeah yeah i mean and we cover a lot of of european football so it's not just you know german national football or the bundesliga so it was exciting to kind of move around a little bit
1: yeah no absolutely strangely enough we don't actually have any major european football updates i guess aside from last episode you, we were talking about who would be the next Chelsea manager. You kind of jokingly threw out the prospect of Frank Lampard returning to Stamford Bridge. We were looking at the <laughs> odds; he was fifty to one at the time, and he has now agreed. He has returned as the caretaker manager—the term that would be used in England. I guess you'd say interim in the US. Um, yeah, unlikely caretaker.
0: Like I, I guess. It probably doesn't have the same connotation, but to me, a caretaker would be like someone who like is really old and looks over a house that's
1: crumbling and falling apart. <laughs> no, it's pretty, it's pretty similar. I mean, you might use okay. caretaker for someone who's looking, taking care of someone who's sick and stuff as well. You know, yes, as other. well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But no, it's similar. But yeah, traditionally, yeah, it's the, the term that's always gets used. Someone who's tem- in temporary charge, trying to make sure the things go smoothly until the, the permanent replacement is found. And yeah, that's Frank Lampard. It seemed, Luis Enrique is appears to be in quite advanced talks with Chelsea, so he's the likely full-time replacement probably at the end of the season. But Lampard will see out the remainder of the season, see if he can get Chelsea's league form to improve. And I guess the really exciting thing for him is they're still in the Champions League. And it does raise a <laughs> slight dilemma if he were to win the champions league and chelsea have experienced this previously with roberto di Matteo. it's tough i'm i'm sure they'll probably have some agreement in place with whoever the full-time replacement is anyway before the champions league final takes you know occurs but it will be difficult if he somehow does win the champions league to ask him to then move along and someone else step into the fold.
0: Yeah, and, and I think... I guess my question, though, is in the betting markets, where it says Chelsea's next manager, are you now a winner with Frank Lampard or no?
1: I think it depends on the terms and conditions of the bookmaker. Usually they say permanent manager, and I think that's sometimes minimum number of games that they have to be in charge for. and 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 so... I think that depends. So some bookmakers yes, some bookmakers So yeah, I got to
0: hope he doesn't get sacked
1: so soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean I guess you always run the risk that uh he might you know if they come to some I think it's a, it seems as if he'll be in charge until the end of the season. But yeah, there I guess there's depending on who they want to f- to take charge on a full-time basis. Maybe they might ask to to be there before the season is finished. But other than that, been it's a relatively slow sporting week. Yeah. I guess
0: when it's this slow, Eddie, we have to go all the way down to the Tucson Adult Beer League Hockey.
1: <laughs> and, yeah, you,
0: and uh, you know, we talked about this off podcast a little bit, but uh, the roller hockey league that I'm in, the season has ended and my team did not do very well in the playoffs. We had a very rough season. uh the there is a team that I would say is basically like the man city of our league and has probably the best talent and wins almost every year. This, but this year they lost in the semifinals, it was a very big upset that they lost and didn't even make it to the finals. Upon that loss, I received a text message saying that I have uh they are open to taking me on their team. So they have a spot open. Do I want to take the spot? And for me, I said, this makes me feel like Jack Grealish, you know, the successful, young, handsome looking player who's, you know, one of the best on his team. Loved by the fans.
1: Probably not the brightest.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but it's got a hell of jacked legs. And, you know, whether I want to stay on the team that I'm probably a top three player and someone who's kind of relied upon to do well in tough situations versus going to a team where out of the eight players, I'm probably in the bottom three of that team and and more of a role player, but can start to build my trophy
1: case. (laughs) Just to clarify, how many players are on a team?
0: Ten? Uh, Usually eight. No, eight. Okay. Two lines okay. of four.
1: So the top three to bottom three swing is, is not massive.
0: It's not massive, but it's it's a big difference, I think, to be like one of the guys who the team needs you to score versus one of the guys where, hey, look who scored. Okay, cool. Good job.
1: <laughs> yes. But as I said, I don't think the Jack Grealish comparison is is particularly apt, I think.
0: Yeah. I just don't have the hair. You're right. I wish I did. <laughs> wish I could say I had the hair, but I don't.
1: No, I just think, you know, he was undoubtedly the best player on his team. His team had virtually no prospects of winning anything. In fact, relegation was more likely than winning a trophy. And he has, there's also different parallels. The incentives of going to City are also testing himself in a kind of tougher situation, making a lot more money. None of those, well, neither of those factors are at play for you.
0: I think, well, I think that the testing myself, you know, can I can I enhance my game a little bit and step the into same the league, level? It's the same yeah, league,
2: though. It's the same. So
0: it's so it's the
1: Premier League. It's the same league. No, because he gets to play Champions League football. You've not got. Okay. You've not got well, the who Champions. Knows? Maybe
0: if we win, we get to go to the semi-pro. <laughs> okay,
1: but I think I think it's there are more similarities in a sense with Harry Kane. Now I guess the difference is Harry ah, Kane is thank you I without, appreciate that. Ha- Harry Kane is without <laughs> doubt the best player on his team. So when you're saying you're top 3 out of 8, I think that doesn't put you into Harry Kane territory. But in the sense that the big dilemma for you is do you go elsewhere and possibly win, but in doing so you will not get as much credit and probably might not get as much satisfaction. But if you stay on your team that's struggling a bit more and that you've been part of for a longer period of time, if they win, you get to feel as if it was because of you and not that you were just part of it. It's very
0: tough. It's a tough decision. But how amazing would it be if I go to the team that had now lost in the semifinals and I'm the one that brings them back into the championship and winning again, I was the missing piece. Or I'm the morale a, guy. I'm the morale guy at okay. that point.
1: <laughs> imagine the scenario where at the end of this season you're in the playoffs against your old team, and Ooh. it's it's you who doesn't score on the fast break, and your old team goes through to the next round. That's that sounds much that more like the Duke of Curse. <laughs> that yeah. sounds I mean, in a sense, I want to see the true the truest test of the Duke of Curse might be. If you switch teams and if your other team suddenly wins the title and this the team you join <laughs> falls apart, we can put it entirely down to the Duke of curse. Uh,
0: yeah, it'll, it'll be tough. I think ultimately I'm probably going to switch the teams just because we also talked off air that oh, I'm much better news. friends. I'm much better friends with the other team. So no, not that I'm I not hope. friends with the team. I'm Oh play no, with. no, no, no.
1: I, well, I hope, I hope none of your current team members listen to this podcast this is I'll a... send them
0: this clip. This is the motivation <laughs> they need.
1: Hey. <laughs> I'm never
0: they... gonna win with the puck knights. I am leaving them permanently. They're a What's bunch the of losers. Of
1: the... What's the other the team's name?
0: <laughs> the other team, you're gonna love this. It's very Ted Lassoy. They're blowing bubbles.
1: <laughs> oh, so like they're big West Ham fans? <laughs> no.
0: The person who sponsors owns a scuba diving uh place. <laughs>
1: I, I'll just say, I don't... The Puck Knights is a better team name, but neither of those team names are great. With but it's Puck the, Knights,
0: like, Knights, you know, like... And we play with, at night, so it's like the...
1: Yeah, I'm, it doesn't... Whether it was with a K or without blow, a K. And
0: then, well, the, blowing, the, the reason they're called Blowing Bubbles is because instead of having their name on the back, everyone's name just says
1: Bubbles. <laughs> neither of the... Factors that you've (laughs) no, neither of the factors you've thrown in have made their team names better. I just think with the possibilities for good puns, and I expect a good pun in like a beer league team name. Both have missed the boat, which I suppose is more ironic for blowing bubbles.
0: Yeah. Well, my our Sunday team, Eddie is called D's Nets. Is that better?
1: Yeah, it's better. I still don't <laughs> love it, but it's definitely better. I just don't know how you in- include, like, you you go for the puck in the team name, and you don't really get a pun. That's the thing that surprises me.
0: Sorry. It was a cool jersey, because it's got, like a, like, a knight on it. Well, there you go. Um, You're yeah, gonna... I think we'll have to see now. This will be interesting to see how this season unfolds and what team reigns supreme now that I've left. But I, I love the Harry Kane comparison. I think that's pretty
1: accurate. Uh, it's extremely flattering for you. Yeah. But, or or him. One or the other. Now we didn't maybe to wrap things up before we move over to the interview. We didn't whilst we discussed March Madness while it was going on, we didn't have any reaction to the final four or the Ultimate winners of either the men's or the women's national championship games. There's obviously some controversy I'm to.
0: I'm interested to see where you're going to go with this.
1: <laughs> there's some controversy to discuss on the women's side. Okay. The men's side. I knew it. In the end, the best team in the final four won the tournament, the team everyone with UConn. Yeah. I think not the best team in the nation, which it's one of my issues I have with the March Madness format overall is you put 64 teams in and it's just kind of a weird outcome happens more frequently than it probably should. But I've got a question. You like to throw some little quiz questions at me. I've got a quiz question for you. How many current NBA players won a national championship in college?
0: Wow. Okay. Hold on. Let me think of how many current nba players are probably are first off okay 27
1: did you see this fact no oh because it is 27 so no
0: way are you kidding me
1: no i'm not kidding you it's 27
0: wow that i i'm completely honest i did not see that fact at all i was just gonna say 25 but i didn't want to be the boring person who says like a you know like a super like normal number. So I just bumped it up to to 27.
1: <laughs> yeah, 27. The interesting thing about it is there are very few standout players when you kind of look through the list. Probably yeah. the, the only real superstar currently playing in the NBA who also won a national title in college is Anthony Davis, who won with Kentucky, has gone on to win an NBA mm-hmm. title with the Lakers. Everyone else, you're kind of picking through a lot of I mean good NBA players but not elite and that's to me that's the other issue in a sense is success in March Madness in no way is a good predictor for success in the NBA (laughs) but moving away from the quiz I guess we can then go on to some of the controversy in the in the women's tournament which is more the reaction of the winning team Mostly surrounding, in a weird turn of events, the first lady Jill Biden, who has got herself <laughs> into hot water on two counts. One, seemingly the standard invitation to attend the White House as reigning national champions might potentially be turned down on the basis that Jill Biden, I think, in a Throwaway attempt to just be a nice person congratulating both teams is my take on it, perhaps you will disagree. Said that maybe Iowa should also be invited to the White House because they'd played so well. I don't think that was a slight on LSU. I think there is some understandably perhaps racial elements that are being implied in as to why she, when you had – a team that had a, a white superstar and quite a lot of white players versus an LSU team that was mostly non-white. Um, But I just took it as her trying to like a person who doesn't watch sports probably just, Hey, they both played a great game. They should both be allowed to come. The, I can at least understand why some LSU players have got a bit annoyed. The thing that they already reacted to before they even want it with Jill Biden, they, they, didn't allow her to come into the locker room before the game the national championship which was one of the things she was going to do come in and speak to both teams and their reason for not allowing her to come in was because when she picked her bracket she didn't pick them to win the title that is the most that's Ted Lasso style overreaction to people making preseason predictions
0: I think we are on same wavelengths today because when I read this same article, I thought we're going to have to take down our bashing of Ted Lasso a little bit because some of these dumb storylines do actually exist in real life. (laughs) I couldn't believe that when I read that. And and, uh, yeah, it is so ridiculous that you would turn down... uh, I'll say this. I am not someone who like... If I met the president, I would be like, oh, my God, I met the president. But at the same time, if the president want to come and, you know, like be where I was, you know, like if the president said, hey, I'm going to come to the university. I want to meet with these four people and I'm one of them. I'd be extremely flattered and in no way would I say no. Do you know what I mean? But I wouldn't go out of my way to like drive to D.C. if he had an hour of like a book signing and I could be on the on the on the list or whatever. It just blows my mind that they would say no, because. They did not pick them to win the national. Do you think Joe Biden and do you right Joe Biden, do you think he knows what a basketball is anymore? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, do you definitely... think he, do you think he knows who he picked at that point? <laughs> well, that would always <laughs> no. be the interesting, the interesting thing to me to be, do they even make the picks themselves? You know, like, or do you go to, I'm sure Obama did because he liked basketball. So he was probably watching yeah. college basketball throughout the season when he had time or at least following it to some degree. So there, again, I wouldn't see Obama not picking my team as a slight, but I could at least, you could say, hey, he genuinely doubted us. But yeah, in the case of Joe Biden or Jill Biden, they're not sitting, they didn't sit down and, and really go through like, well, okay, this team lost four games, but let's let's look through the value of the wins they had. You know, there's, yeah. there's just, I went to Iowa once, better, I guess they'll win oh, uh, yeah. you know, my, my, my grandson, he applied to LSU but didn't get in, so I'm going to have them losing. You know, like there's the, the reasons why they pick their brackets are going to be just as dumb as the reasons why the rest of us do. So to take any offense, it makes you look ridiculous. And the shame for them is in a way they could have maybe made something that resembled a solid argument as to why they were so upset about her offering or a kind of empty, hollow offer of Iowa also getting a White House visit. But when you combine the, their reaction to her saying that with the fact that they wouldn't let her come into the locker room because of the bracket selection, it just makes them look like petty assholes. And so you lose the high ground, <laughs> and that's that's what bothers me.
0: Yeah, and I mean what I read from this whole thing is that they are that team that we've talked about before, that is a good team that likes to create this false chip on their shoulder and that no one believed in them and no one thought they could do anything and no one thought they would do this and that and here they are against all odds, you know, like, okay, enough, enough is enough. Like you you weren't the 15th seed, you know, like you were a high seeded team. People clearly thought you were a good team. You can't pull this no one believed in us card. And that was, and I mean, you could see just in the way, I mean, what the other major thing is Angel Reese, who is the star for LSU, has been very vocal about the whole Biden situation, but she was also the one who was kind of doing the John Cena, you can't see me to the Iowa player Clark, who had been doing it all tournament, or at least the last few games that she had been playing in and had been televised for. And there you could clearly see it was like uh, just they were using that as motivation of like no one believes in us no one respects us like Clark never did it to them if anything she was doing it to other opponents in previous games never once did she do this to any LSU players so the fact that they're going to use this as motivation kind of shows that they're a team that will cling on to anything as a way to like See, look, we're so disrespected because Clark's doing it to a, a different opponent. Like, they don't respect us either. You know, like, it's, 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 it's dumb. It's, it's very petty.
1: Yeah. When she wouldn't have even probably have expected to play LSU in the, at any point in the tournament. You know, like there was no reason for them to expect that that was going to be the matchup that they would have. But no, it's, it makes them look bad. And on, I guess on the men's side of things, obviously UConn won their, their first Well, yeah, so I, I, want,
0: I want one more thing. Okay, I, go for I it. I'll I'll get on my soapbox a little bit for that thing because there has been a lot of controversy that Angel Reese has gotten a lot of heat for doing that to Caitlin Clark, right? For sure that's that right? Yeah, Caitlin um, Clark, yeah. Yeah. And how when Caitlin Clark did it, people loved it and no one thought it was disrespectful. And like, you know, saying this is a whole racial uh, you know, like disparity and and the judgment and things like that. For me, it has like absolutely nothing to do with that. It's the complete circumstance of the situation. And I think David Portnoy actually got like roasted on this because he had a similar take that I I think that I had. Is maybe I'm not, I won't be nearly as aggressive as Portnoy. (laughs) I'm not, I won't be nearly aggressive as him because I think he was like cursing about it and everything. But there is a difference when a player does a celebration that's more aimed at like her teammates and her fans like when you score a goal you're not celebrating in front of your opponent you're celebrating with your team with your fans and that i'm not the hugest fan of that i think play the game and that's it like whatever but i'm okay with it like you're not disrespecting anybody by doing that and that for the most part is what caitlin clark was doing during during her games there was not very much disrespect directed towards other teams but When you not only direct it towards an opposing player, but do it after the game ends, when you've already won, that is as petty as it gets. And that is ultimately the ultimate poor sportsmanship. Like, even if it was during the game, you say like, all right, come on, that's like disrespectful, but whatever, like maybe your trash talk is what puts you over the edge a little bit. But after you've won the game and for five seconds, you're circling her like a shark, like imitating her and making fun of her and pointing at your like ring finger and 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 talking shit like you won who cares be a good sport you won go celebrate with your team you don't need to still trash talk someone who like wasn't even trash talking you to begin with like that is so so low level
1: yeah i mean i think we saw that the comparison in a sense was during the recent world cup which you know argentina faced a backlash when they knocked the Netherlands out on penalties where their reaction was less celebratory in terms of their achievement, but more the pleasure they took out of the kind of disappointment of their opponents. And that's the same thing. Like you've just achieved the, the biggest success. And I was consistent on that. (laughs) But you know, if you're, if you're an LSU player, you've just achieved the biggest success of your basketball playing career. Maybe the biggest success you ever achieve as an athlete and to have part of that focus be on the failure of your opponent, especially when there's a very good chance that opponent is going to go on to have a much better career than you anyway. You know, that's the other element of kind of maybe knowing your, your stature a little bit. And I think you do need to know that, right? Like if you're playing against Messi and you win and you're kind of a a sort of also ran to, to go and celebrate in Messi's face makes you look extra stupid. Not to call Caitlin Clark Messi, but you know, there's a good chance she turns out to be one of the best players in, in women's basketball. But I, yeah, overall, well, Angel I,
0: Reese is really good too. Like I, you know, don't want to is, rip on her for not being good, but I'm not I, ripping on her for not I being good. I completely agree with you.
1: Though. But I think they're on different levels. One is being talked about about as potentially changing the game of women's basketball, and the other was just one of the better players on the team that won the national title. You know, like that's a different kind of stratosphere to be in but uh, final thoughts i guess before you move on to the the uh the interview just my only takeaway yukon men's team they won their fifth national title a couple of years ago their head coach kind of made ha- headlines after he was knocked out uh, after they were knocked out for saying you better take advantage of us now because we're, we're coming for you like you know we're going to be better our time will come kind of thing it was a, I thought it was stupid at the time. I think it's even stupider that I have then had to listen to people bring that up as if he's Nostradamus. I mean, he's, he's obviously going to say his team's going to get better. That's the role of the coach. I also want to say UConn have no really good wins on their CV from this national title run. So I don't even think you prove that Like you better take advantage of us now. In winning this national title, the highest seed they beat was a, f- a five seed. They beat 3-5 seeds. So they got that going for them. And then... Oh, no. So they beat a 3-seed. Gonzaga was a 3-seed. So they got a 3-seed, three 3-5 three, seeds, an 8-seed, and a 14-seed. And a hey, you can only beat the team that you're facing, Eddie. You can, but you didn't exactly run the gauntlet. Like, I don't think you've emphatically proven, like, we're the best team and we're here to stay. You, you had a nice run. You know, it's, it's like... Going back to the England in say the 2018 World Cup, great to make it to the semi final, but it didn't. England didn't prove that they were one of the four best teams in the world by beating, you know, Sweden and Colombia. You know, it doesn't. And I, UConnor, will, say, I
0: will say though, like you said, the coach said, you know, we'll be back. Take advantage of this now. If you're a Yukon fan. You've had some pretty decent success in like the last 25 years. You'd be happy to be a UConn fan. So you've won in 99, then you won in 04, then you won in 2011, then you won in 2014, then you won in 2023. Like that's a pretty consistent. You know, like if I were a fan, I would, I would love to have that. Uh, you know, you've won five national championships in 25 years. Like that's that's pretty good. And they're not all just, you know – four or five years in a row they're kind Another. of spread out so you, you go through some highs and lows you you hate your team for a little bit and then you love them again and you get disappointed you know it's not like england you're not just constantly getting disappointed
1: <laughs> <laughs> although how pissed off are you if you happen to go through your entire time at yukon in the like one of those periods where they didn't win a national title like you go to fit your whole degree in and just never have been there for yeah. the, the national title win That would suck. But yeah, on that note, talking about success, dominance, failure, down periods, maybe it's the perfect opportunity for us to uh, turn things over to our interview. Well, welcome back. And we're now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Raphael Honigstein, staff writer at The Athletic, also co-host of the Beer and Honey podcast. I guess one of the sort of Authorities on German football. So, Raphael, Rafa, Raf, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us.
2: Thanks for having me and thanks for your very kind introduction.
1: <laughs> yes. So, I guess I'm sure this, well, I know this is a topic that you've discussed pretty extensively, perhaps even exhaustively over the past few days and, well, I guess week or so. But seeing as you are one of the leading experts on German football, it would be a shame to not have you on and maybe have the starting topic be the the situation with Bayern Munich and what led to the sacking of Nagelsmann, which I think came as a surprise to most people from your perspective. Was it as, was it a total surprise and and exactly what were the events that led up to Bayern Munich deciding they needed to change their manager?
2: The timing, <clears throat> sorry, the timing was a surprise because they had these huge games coming up. It's, the last third of the season, you thought, okay, Bayern have some problems inconsistent, but are they really gonna make some huge changes with these games coming up? I think the fact that Thomas Toho was available made Bayern hasten that decision and perhaps find a find the courage to do what their conviction told them to do, which is to really make that change. I think without Nagotsmann, sorry, without Thomas Tuchel being available, I think Nagelsmann probably sees out the season, even if those doubts and those concerns would have never been quite alleviated. Uh, it's not a big mystery in a sense because Bayern felt that the performances, the results, especially in the league, were pointing towards a bad ending just as they had last season, where they got knocked out in the Champions League quarterfinals and uh, they were no longer in the cup and they just kind of limped on to to win the championship. But they didn't have much competition at the time. This time it's, it's different with Dortmund <clears throat> having found more consistency. So it wasn't a sense of Nagelsmann losing the dressing room, having a huge argument with his superiors, um, being terribly bad as a coach, more sort of a, a, a slow-burning process which started already in the second half of last season. And those concerns, those doubts, this feeling, the sense that him and the team are not quite on the same wavelength uh, tactically, maybe also in terms of the emotional bond uh, that didn't really exist between him and too many of the players. Bayern felt that things were only heading for for one way, which is down. And I think the unique thing about Bayern is, and I can't stress this enough, this is really important to understand, unlike most clubs, they are not prepared to give coaches the benefit of the doubt and say, look, he's won last year, let's give him this year. And then in the third year, maybe he'll be fine again. No, they will fire you as soon as they feel... Performances are dropping, chances of winning uh, stuff uh, decrease. So if you look back at the last 12 years, Louis van Gaal takes Bayern close to winning a treble, gets fired in the second season. Niko Kovac fired in the second season after winning the league in his first. Kalon same thing. Um, so these are just three coaches in the last um, 11 years that had the same story. Um So in a way, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big surprise. The surprise was, I think, the timing. So then
1: talking about how it is actually a sort of normal process for them, with standards and expectations being so high, I mean, the winning the Bundesliga is sort of taken for granted almost. Is the Bayern job almost a bit of a, a kind of poison chalice in that, I mean, you have to be probably winning the Champions League you know, every other year almost to be able to stand out as a, as a Bayern Munich manager?
2: Uh, yes and no. Uh, winning the league, as you said, is just a bare minimum and no one's really going to erect any statues outside Allianz Arena if you do that. Not winning it is a disaster and totally unacceptable. But there are degrees of failure, if you want to call it that. I mean, Pep Guardiola getting to the semifinals three times in a row in the Champions League was not seen as a failure Um, Bayern, especially in that last year, were very, very unlucky, were probably the best team in Europe. And Bayern would have liked to stick with him if they'd had a chance to do so. Uh, The same with Hansi Flick, who in his second season got knocked out by PSG, but it was his falling out with a sporting director that really ended his, his time there rather than anything to do with the team or with his performances. So, yes, the expectations are ridiculously high. On the other hand, you go to Bayern, you're guaranteed almost to win stuff. Um, And you come away being a winner. And you come away having worked with some of the best players in Europe and you come away having beaten some of the best teams in Europe if things go according to plan. So it still does enhance your CV. And you can see now from the offers that are coming, Julian Nagelsmann's ways, that it hasn't really hurt him. The fact that... um, things ended prematurely and that he didn't uh, win the Champions League in his first season. Who knows, he might have had a real good shot this season if Bayern persisted with him. So, Poison Chalice, yes, in a way. At the same time, it is quite a golden cage that you live in. So, um, it is uh, quite, uh, it's a comfortable misery, shall we say, to face that kind of pressure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no. Now, do, do you think that um, the sharpness that they have, do you think that creates any hesitation for managers to want to take that job? Or do you think, like you're saying, you're still going to get some accolades from it that it's going to help you down the line no matter what, that there is no hesitation to take that job with such a potential short leash?
2: Yeah, I think I can't think of too many coaches apart from actually Tuchel in 2018, who targeted and targeted in the end didn't get. And I think the reason is that they offer a pretty persuasive package. You earn a lot of money. You live in a very beautiful city. You have the best team, so your chances of winning staff are sort of 75% to begin with. And um, you have a realistic shot of winning the Champions League. And you've that's been the situation now for 10 years in a row. I don't think too many teams, with the exception of let's say Real Madrid for sure but even then I'm not sure there's a second team over those last 10 years that went into the Champions League season thinking we have a realistic shot of winning every single year I don't think any of the other other sides I can think of at the top of my head have had that consistency Liverpool only started with Klopp Man City, of course, only started with with Guardiola. Man United have been not really a factor in the Champions League. Uh, Chelsea are very up and down. Uh, Barcelona, not really a factor for the second half of of the last decade. So it's yeah, it doesn't leave that many that many options. So for all the drawbacks and um, perhaps a sense of predictability of who's gonna win the league, Bayern still offers a lot of stuff that people who work in football are interested in. And that's also the reason why players keep coming there. I think from the outside looking in, you think surely they want to test themselves in a stronger league or at a different club where they have to fight ball. But but players just like more normal employees don't think like that. They think where can I get paid lots of money and where can I have a really good chance of succeed, succeeding and winning stuff. And there just aren't that many clubs that, c- that can offer what Bayern can at a pretty high level.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it, obviously, they're, they're not failing to attract big-name managers. I guess maybe as a, a final question relating to Nagelsmann and his time at Bayern Munich, I know in, his, in being linked to the Chelsea job, one of the reasons why they're a bit skeptical is his age. Was his age and, and lack of experience in any way an issue? At Bayern Munich?
2: I'm not sure the age was such an issue. It's more, I think, his, his immaturity and lack of experience at this level. I think at Leipzig, he didn't really have those problems. Certainly at Hoffenheim, he didn't have those problems, having been promoted as a youth coach. I think Bayern is a different beast. You have a different dressing room, bigger egos, players who've worked with some of the best coaches in the world. And I think Nagelsmann failed to appreciate that as a Bayern coach, you are under the spotlight much more than being at Hoffenheim at Leipzig. And it doesn't stop and doesn't start and end with what you do on the training pitch or what you you wear in training. People look at the kind of stuff you wear on the touchline. People look at uh, the car you drive, the motorcycle you drive, the skateboard you drive, and they they are deducting that somebody who is making such a big effort to put himself in a certain light is doing that because they have a certain sense of, of self-centeredness and perhaps vanity, which in itself is, is fine. And most coaches, I'm sure, have, have a really vain streak. Certainly Guardiola had at Bayern. But I think you have to do it in a way that doesn't lose the respect of the players and of his superiors. And I think at times he did things, he said things where the club felt, this isn't really what we expect from a Bayern Munich manager. Um, I don't think these things ultimately mattered, but because he failed to find the results and the performances that the team expected in sense of the quality that's at his disposal... Then these things kind of start to weigh against you um, and become become a factor. So I don't think there's a causation or you know there's a there's a causal connection between what he wears on the touchline and Bayern not playing well. But when Bayern don't play well, these other things then become part of the conversation. So I think he would have learned from that and be a little bit perhaps more low-key and putting the team first and trying to perhaps be more of a team player, which is something I think that uh, at a team like Bayern, you have, to, you have to listen very closely to what the team are telling you and what the mood in the, in the dressing room is like. And I think he was perhaps a little bit too technocratic in his approach, thinking that the right tactics were just bring out the best of this team and everything else is kind of not not really important.
1: Well I guess maybe speaking there stop a little it, bit about stop
2: pushing your ageism agenda Eddie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it's always depressing to see you know managers who are younger than yeah. you but I was gonna say stop being jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's there's a lot a high degree of envy but uh talking about maybe the state of the Bundesliga then overall and a little bit of element that kind of that culture. Do you think in the long term Bayern's continued dominance is dangerous for the, the sort of health of the Bundesliga overall and maybe perhaps even the interest in it. And and is there any possibility of them relinquishing that stranglehold on German football anytime soon?
2: Well, I don't think there's any doubt that it's not healthy for the league. Um, everyone's excited this season because there is a genuine title race, until, at least until mid-April. So that's that's a novelty. That's something that uh, is exciting, that pushes buy-in. that makes Bayern nervous, as you see. And that creates more excitement and people care what's happening. And, of course, any sporting competition needs, needs that sense of you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And it, the league is much better for it. Domestically, I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference because the German market is dominated by people who watch their teams. And if you're a Cologne, if you're a Cologne fan, if you're a Hamburg fan in the second division, if you're a Bayern fan, if you're a Dortmund fan, you don't watch according to the outcome of the league. You watch because this is what you do. You watch your team, whether they're winning or losing. It doesn't really make a make a difference. You might get a few more neutrals tuning in uh, when there's a title race, or fans from other clubs now watching, you know, the bigger games of the bigger teams because they want to know what what the title race will bring. But it doesn't really change the equation. Where, of course, it gets more difficult is selling the product abroad. Um, you need to have at least two teams who are fighting. Uh, that's the experience in Spain um, in recent years. Uh, and, of course, Atletico have, have broken that to a certain extent at Diopoli. Um, Italy has, has really rebounded strongly, benefited from uh, that much more open contest that we've seen in recent years. So, yeah, it would be, would be better. Um, but I think would would even be helped by the fact that Dortmund just winning the odd title here and there would just help. It doesn't have to necessarily be head-to-head, one-year Bayern, one-year Dortmund. It's unrealistic when you consider Bayern's financial position and Dortmund's financial position. Bayern always have a head start. But if Dortmund had won, let's say, in 20, 2018, when they had a real chance uh, with Nico Kovac being a very weak manager, if um, perhaps they would have taken advantage this year, although they've done as well as they could have done in the second half, in the first half, they dropped too many points, then we might be having a different conversation. But in the long run, what the Bundesliga needs above all is to have recognizable brands that people outside Germany are interested in. So Bayern have a massive following and their following is is probably bigger than it ever was not despite the league being a foregone conclusion, but perhaps because it is, because they're winning stuff and that's attractive to people and they become Bayern fans. So, But it's only one club. We need more than that. We need the equivalent of people also following Liverpool and following um, Arsenal and following Chelsea and following uh, perhaps Man City. We don't have enough of that. Dortmund have a presence internationally and they have a following but it's not the same level as Bayern. And then below them, there's a long, long gap and there's absolutely no one really within 50 feet of them. So that's where we need to grow. And it's hard to see where that's going to come from because the organic setup of the Bundesliga with very tight restrictions on outside investment and what you can and can't do to grow a club, it shows... It's not impossible to do, as the fine examples of Freiburg, Union Berlin and Frankfurt would show. It can be done, but it takes a lot of time. And it's always quite fragile because you just need a couple of bad seasons and then you're back at the queue again. Because you don't have enough guaranteed income to become part of the established elite. So there is no real good answer because within German football, people are very reluctant to change. Um, they they value that organic connection, that accountability that comes with member-controlled clubs above a sense of competition and these dreams that English fans have that my club will one day be bought by Sheik from Abu Dhabi and I can also win the Champions League. German, German supporters, for them, that's a dystopia rather than a, than a dream.
1: Which, yeah, which makes sense. I mean, I'm a Blackburn Rovers supporter, so I've experience the Jack Walker time of one of the amazing things that money can do. And then also an ownership, uh, well, family who didn't realize you could be relegated from the premier league. So sort of had both, both experiences. Y- you say there's a reluctance there. Is there any possibility you've, you've referred there to the, the 50 plus one rule. Is there any possibility of that ever being changed in, in a sense in an effort to try and open the league up to more parity?
2: I think it's possible. People are kind of chewing away f- at it. There even there has been um, certain exemptions granted, like Leverkusen and Wolfsburg, who are owned by their parent companies for historic reasons. There's a mechanism by which if you support a club for 20 years straight with a certain amount of money, you can then take over the whole club. So you can, if you take a lot of time, do that within the confines then of the licensing system. And of course, financial fair play might play a role as well if you want to play in Europe. Um, you have clubs that pay lip service to it, but are not really 50 plus one compliant like RB Leipzig. Um, Hoffenheim would be a similar case, although that's changing now with Dietmar Hopp giving back his shares to the club. Um, so it's, on the one hand, it's hard to see how the consensus will hold in the face of so many exemptions and so many kind of clubs that are trying to circumvent the system or at least bend the rules at the same time, the grassroots and the supporters are really reluctant or uh, I should say hostile to any more hostile changes. And I think the clubs themselves will be very reluctant to push for it. So it's hard to see where the change will come from, at least in the in the medium future. Uh, The most realistic possibility is somebody actually going to court. We've had Hanover um, try that. They haven't really succeeded. But eventually somebody might say, look, um, I want to buy a football club. Um, Why can't I do it? Uh, Isn't that crazy that I can't buy a club when I can buy everything else? But um, it hasn't happened yet.
0: So you talked a little before about the maybe lack of support of some of the other clubs. Um, and when I think of the, the U.S., I actually feel like there's a lot of support for Dortmund among U.S. fans who watch Bundesliga, I think in part due to Dortmund being able to attract some young American talent and having that kind of develop and grow there. Um, so for, I guess, people who aren't so familiar, how are Dortmund so good at not only securing and attracting young talent, but actually like scouting for all these young talent and, and consistently bringing in younger players that have huge impacts, and then you know continue on to then you know be superstars and move up the ranks throughout other clubs.
2: Yeah, it's a couple of things. First of all, they just have very capable people, and they've had them now for for a while. They've had people like Sven Mislintat there, or the chief scout uh, Marcos Pilava, who's just gone to Bayern. There are people that just understand what a good player is and they perhaps see them more quickly or at an earlier stage than others. Um, But more importantly, Dortmund have a track record of giving these young players game time and helping them develop. And now they're in a position already for a few years where the best players, and everyone knows who these are, everyone knows who Jude Bellingham is already at 16 and he already could have gone everywhere in the world. But Dortmund pot now in a position where agents and the parents of children know that Dortmund is sort of the best place often if you are a teenager who wants to take that first step and the reason for that is because they occupy a very specific space in the football ecosystem you know they're they're not a small club they're sort of the 12th, 13th richest club in, in Europe they have a huge stadium they're sort of more or less guaranteed Champions League football every year unless something goes dramatically wrong because they are the second biggest team, maybe third in terms of quality at times with Leipzig. But they will always finish top four. Um, And they have a team that is good, but not so good that you don't have a chance of as a young player coming in. So all these things make for a very productive environment for these kind of players. And increasingly, Dortmund don't have to do much because these guys get offered to them. You have the agents calling up and say, Look, uh, we're thinking about the next step. We're in the under 19s at Man City, but we know going to City is going to be hard and, and so on. Where should we go? What should we do? Do you want to take us on? And then, if Dortmund feels the player is good enough, he's, he's going to Dortmund uh, because they've done it now for so many years with so many players. And of course, you know that when you play at Dortmund for a couple of years, it's going to have much more effect than going to a top Premier League side and getting loaned out to a lower Premier League side or even to the championship where you might get lost in you know, some terrible football with terrible players around you. So Dortmund offer this pathway that, um, that is hugely attractive for these kind of players.
1: Maybe speaking of that Dortmund pathway then, uh, you literally wrote the book on Jurgen Klopp. And that happened to coincide with a tremendous period of success for him. He's now maybe experiencing one of the most challenging periods of his career in terms of the issues at Liverpool and, and how they'll be able to resolve them. Based on the insights that you gathered during the process of writing that book, how how well do you think do you think he relishes the challenge the challenges he's currently facing at liverpool and do you think that's then a project that he wants to be part of long term even if it's not just year after year success
2: i don't think anyone relishes being so far away from your own ambitions and goals especially when you came so close last year to have the best season ever in english football to now struggling to get into the European places, let alone the Champions League, I don't think it's a very enjoyable process. Uh, fans are unhappy. The whole red half of the city is unhappy. The dressing room, you know, is not happy when you are not winning or when you lose big. So I don't think it's fun. Um, I don't think it's expected either because they came so close last year, and uh, in their mind they have strengthened, uh, perhaps not much, not as much as you wanted to. Perhaps not really getting the. Uh, kind of midfield reinforcement that would have done a lot of good for this team. But still, big players coming in, more quality coming in. They'd lost money, but when you look at the players that they have at their disposal, it shouldn't be that much of an issue. So it seems that Klopp maybe underestimated the size of the drop-off this season. And the size of the problems. And I kind of sympathize because you have players like Van Dijk and Fabinho who are just not the same level. And I don't think there were any indications to believe that they would drop so much. I don't think you really can plan for that. You know, you have Fabinho being one of the best uh, defensive midfielders in Europe. And then suddenly he's a complete ghost. And you're thinking, you know, I I need two players rather than one to replace him. I don't think anyone can could have expected that. So, uh, But at the same time, maybe some one or two other players should have been replaced earlier or there should be more competition. And I think they will draw the right conclusions. And the beauty of this Liverpool situation is that his methods and his position is beyond doubt. He's shown that he can win things. He's shown that he knows how to t- coach a team. And I think the only problem is that the team needs a bit of freshening up. And luckily, he's in a position to do that. Uh, That's never been the case before. When things became a bit stale at Mainz, there wasn't anything to do. And he had outgrown the club anyway. When things became a little bit stale at Dortmund, they didn't have the money to refresh the team. So they had to go down the route of changing the manager and introducing new ideas and he was the first one to actually realize that and accept that, even though it hurt everyone. I think in Liverpool, is a different situation. They will give him the time. They will give him the, uh, the license to make changes. And I think he does not want to leave on a low. He wants to leave on a high. And I think he believes that with a few tweaks, there's still a lot to be won with this team. And I'm sure he's going to develop that hunger again, um, because it's bigger than any sense of fear of failure. I think in him,
0: when you watch Liverpool club has a uh, very, like a good presence on the pitch, you know, clear personality, you know, and even when he's doing interviews, is that the same type of personality that you see behind the scenes is, is he the same type of person when you see him on television as he is, you know, behind the scenes,
2: um, Yes and no. I think he understands that uh, it's a job to do, speaking to journalists, that sometimes he finds it hard to control emotions and the first person he talks to, he uses them almost to vent his uh, emotions and uh, get a lot of frustration out and then he can be on the receiving side of some undeserving, harsh words. But he's calmed down a lot in that respect and I think he controls himself more knowing that he needs to present the club and not say things that he'll regret afterwards. And also, I think, um, project that confidence and project that optimism that things will change. I think that's important. You need to look in control. You need to look as if you have all the answers. You need to look as if you know that if we do this, then we're going to have better results, better, better performances. And I think by now people realize that this is not an act, that he actually does believe he's got the right answers. And when they fall, um, when they fail for whatever reason, it's not because uh, there's a problem with the system or the ideas are wrong. It's just the implementation wasn't quite right. And um, I think that's something that he is also quite protective about. So when you ask asking when you ask these big questions about, you know, is the system perhaps become too predictable? Do they need a plan B? Um, Should they change? Then it becomes very defensive and very upset because I think he wants to avoid this discussion becoming part of the dressing room dialogue that somehow the players themselves start wondering, is this still the right way? Should we perhaps play differently? I think he's found in the past that that can be very corrosive and very detrimental so he always reacts very strongly when somebody asks all these fundamental questions because to him, it's always about putting the plan into work properly because the plan does work. And he's shown that over 20 years and we just need to get it right on the pitch. Don't ask me about, other, about changing things, about playing differently. It's not going to happen with me. And um, don't get these ideas into players' heads that we should play differently because it's not going to happen.
0: Have you ever been on the receiving end of that
2: venting? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been lucky in a sense. It hasn't been too bad. Um, I've had one or two moments with him, but nothing compared to what some of my colleagues have have endured. Um, I'm always also trying to be quite sensitive. So when they lose and you can see that he's very down, you don't want to necessarily kind of poke him too much and, um, revel in the pain, and you you start with a pretty soft question to more kind of listen, and uh, rather than make an in interrogation, which uh, isn't really the right way with him, and he reacts uh, quite badly if you're taking a kind of aggressive uh, sort of political stance. You know, it's it's it's, it's still only football, and uh, it's not a serious not a serious thing, and you just have to sometimes respect that uh, players and, and managers feel very badly and perhaps don't need you to point out all the things that have have gone wrong because they know themselves. Um, and th- that's that's more painful than than anything you can ask them.
1: Maybe transitioning then from a club in a little bit of a crisis to uh, a national team going through a, a bit of a crisis. You also wrote a book on how German football sort of reinvented itself leading up to the success in, in 2014, Das Reboot, which I think is one of the, the better book titles of relating to a, a sports book in a long, long time. You take Since all my then, jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Since then, things haven't gone so well for Germany. Obviously, back-to-back exits in the group stages of World Cups, which is was, I guess, almost inconceivable uh, in 2014, and also the exit in the Euros relatively early on to, to England. How would you compare the low points of now for German football to the, the sort of low point when the, the reinvention that you started to describe began?
2: Yeah, it's two different terms of two different types of crises. Um the one around the turn of the century was about no longer producing players. You know, we were looking around Europe and everyone seemed to have technical players, wingers, number tens, and Germany only had holding midfielders some really good holding midfielders and some good defenders. But with the exception of Michael Ballack and Sebastian Deisler, none of these players that really get your your pulse racing. And why wasn't Germany producing these players? And I think the lessons that have been learned then are still filtering through now. And we still have perhaps not quite as many, but we have a pretty decent pool of players who play at the highest level, play for the best teams in the world. And when you put them all together, they should be pretty competitive. So it's not a fundamental crisis in the sense that we don't have these players anymore. And there's something really wrong with German football. I think this is much more on a sort of micro level. Um, Löw outstayed his welcome. He should have been sacked or left much earlier. Uh, 2018 was a disaster of his making mostly uh 2021 certainly was had his fingerprints all over it by the way he set up the team and uh, really playing below below the possibilities um 2022 is harder i think to categorize because it wasn't a disaster in terms of performances they had 20 bad minutes against japan unfortunately those 20 bad minutes was enough to to exit the tournament in one of the less forgiving groups um flick needs to learn very quickly and needs to get a grip but i still feel that there is no reason why come next year we won't have a competitive team fighting for for the title i don't see any scenario where germany Won, will not have a team that that you would consider one of the one of the favorites to win maybe not the favorite they they're not at france's level maybe they're not even at england's level but just below them i think germany for all their problems will will be there because as long as you have players like muziala havertz wirtz gnabry sane Kimmich, Goretzka, you you will be competitive and yes some positions could be better and yes, we don't have the strongest centre-backs in the world, perhaps at the moment, but then your job as a team is to to find reasons to negate your your weaknesses. And I think that's where Flick failed because he didn't really address the imbalance between attack and, and defence. He was too gung-ho and Germany paid the price for it in um, yeah pretty frustrating circumstances. But it was unnecessary because... They certainly were the best uh, team against Japan for seventy minutes and should have won the game three or four nil easily. But it was one of those one of those things. So I'm I'm not as pessimistic as others are. I think we've come a long way from the really dark times. Now it's just making sure that you use this potential which is considerable and use it well. But that's more a question of, of the management rather than Wholesale reform, in my view.
1: And then if you say you're not as pessimistic as some, then do you think overall in Germany, there is a sort of rational response to this period of relative failure in in the sense of being able to understand that consistent success is is probably not something that you can expect? You can't just, you know, pencil yourselves in for the quarterfinals or semifinals of every major tournament and win
2: occasionally. I think you should. I think you should I think that should be the minimum requirement for German football um it used to be that semi-finals were seen as the minimum requirement um so I don't think the expectations are wrong um the reactions of course are never rational that's that's just the nature of football so people then start talking about you know some kind of knee-jerk stuff you know the players shouldn't live in uh, in five-star accommodation they should go to a hostel and sleep in bunk beds and that will teach them but it's just all it's all nonsense <laughs> really it's all nonsense just sort out your sort out your rest defense and uh you know have some more protection for the back four and things look different it's um people like football as a morality play so if you win it's because you are pure you're noble you are superior you are courageous um you know you have more mental strength if you lose it's because you're the opposite of all of that it's because you're weak it's because you are um, lacking in focus it's because you're not serious enough Um, and of course sometimes that can be the explanation but more often than not it's not really the the most pressing issue Um, especially if you have players in this case who have won the Champions League, who've won big trophies and there's no reason why playing for Germany suddenly they should uh, go from being the most resilient and mental tough players to players who can't deal with the challenge of, of playing for Germany and playing against Japan. So I don't buy it. I don't buy that. And um, the emotions will always be um, we'll be strong with the national team. That's, that's the beauty and the curse, if you will, of, of playing for this side. But I'm optimistic that better days are ahead. And just to go back to what we talked about earlier, I think before too long, we'll also see a certain Jurgen Klopp coaching the national team. And I think that promises to be a pretty exciting ride. We might have to wait a little bit longer, but I think before the 20s are over, we'll, we'll see him in charge. And that's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Do you say that based on the fact that the German Federation really want him or on the fact that, you know, that that's a career goal of his or perhaps both.
2: Yeah, I think it's both. Maybe it's too strong to say it's a career goal of him, but I think it's a huge, um, hugely attractive job. And I think it would suit a perhaps slightly different, less frantic lifestyle. Um, With the coaching the national team, the pressure comes very intense. Um, every other year or so, but in between you have three months where you do absolutely nothing. And I think after the treadmill of the of the Premier League and um, especially the COVID years and how, how tough it was for him to shoulder all the responsibility of a club like Liverpool, he would um, he'd be very open to a, a change of rhythm in that sense. And certainly the German FA would would love him because irrespective of Flick being there, he is still the number one coach of his generation and uh, would also immediately boost the popularity of the national team and of the German FA because that's been another problem that they've had in recent years that they're sort of disliked. And with Klopp at the helm, you would um, you would look a lot better and attract a lot more sponsors. So it's definitely... A goal for the German FA to get him into that job at some point, and I'm sure he'd be open open to it. Not just yet, but I think it won't take that much longer.
0: So then, looking forward, I guess in in the next Euro competition and next World Cup, what would be your realistic predictions for Germany moving forward?
2: Well, at the at the moment, it's hard to be that optimistic because we just saw some poor games, especially against Belgium, and you feel, oh my God, this is going to be bad. But then you need to remember important players weren't playing. There was no Eke Gündoğan, there was no Müller, there was no Rüdiger at the back. Um, you also always have one or two players who no one thinks or talks about suddenly having a fantastic second half of the season next year and they're in contention to go to uh, to the Euros. I'm thinking of players like Robin Gossens, David Raum, who nobody really talked about before they got called up. And I'm sure we're going to see one of those players suddenly emerge and be a big factor. Um, For the players that I mentioned before, especially Jamal Muziala, if he continues to develop, I think Germany have a decent shot at uh, getting at least to the semi-final, maybe even win the competition. I I don't see why that shouldn't happen. They need to raise their game. They need to be more consistent. Uh, Hansi Flick needs to, I think, change his coaching, be a lot more decisive in in his decision making but if these things can happen if the big players are all healthy and and and, uh, in good form going into the competition i'd say germany will be among the players sorry will be among the teams that can win this thing
1: i guess following on from that is as my last question and then frank i'll give you the honor of the the final question of the interview but speaking of up-and-coming german players i there's extremely high expectations for Mukoko at Dortmund. What are your views in terms of, you know, what are his, what, where does the potential stretch for him? And is there almost too much pressure on someone who, in a sense, since he was 15, 16, people were thinking of being one of the next big things in European football?
2: Well, I think the pressure will ease because it's no longer such a big story. You know, you're 18 or um, in your early 20s, it doesn't really make that much of a difference anymore. You're now part of the established squad and you're treated as an adult and you need to deliver. And I think he's got potential, but I'm not sure he's, he's a world-class player. I think he's a little bit small for a striker. Um, He is fast, but not crazy fast. He has a wonderful shot, but he works better as a second striker than a second striker needs to play in a system where there's a striker ahead of you, so that kind of limits your possibilities. Otherwise, you have to play through the wings, and that's also not as great. So, I'm. I think he will continue to develop and continue to to become better as you do when you get more experience. But I wouldn't see him necessarily as a key player for Germany going into the Euros, um, which begs the question, who's going to be that centre-forward that they need? Will it be Niklas Völkrug? Hard to say, but I think some of the lessons we've learned in recent years is perhaps that having a striker is better than no striker, even if that striker isn't quite the level um, of the players around them. But again, Flick, I think, still seems to be a little bit undecided, and we'll we'll have to see what happens there.
0: So I'm going to use my last question to maybe shame Eddie a little bit. So we had talked at the beginning of the premier league season about Holland coming to city and whether he would push to break the scoring record for the premier league. Eddie was adamantly against it. Now, someone who obviously covers Bundesliga very well, you've seen him play in his his first season. You're done. I want to clarify. You had your question. (laughs) So going into this season, what, expectations did you have of of Holland and how he would play at City and would he make a push for you know breaking the scoring record or or something like that
2: I I wasn't thinking of him in terms of breaking the scoring (laughs) record but I had no doubt that he was going to just score ridiculous amounts of goals but the question is does he help City (laughs) to go one step further and win the Champions League because if he doesn't um, and if they don't win the league, then it's strange. He will be voted the player of the season, but perhaps having had the impact for his team that that people expected. So it's a, it's a really strange one. But yeah, the guy will score goals in any team, any league, anywhere. It um, doesn't really matter. I think City, by and large, have adjusted well to playing slightly differently with him. Um, he might still make the difference. He might still be the missing ingredient in uh, winning the Champions League and then everyone say it's a stroke of genius. If he doesn't, then the question marks will continue, but they, they will not point at him. They will point at, at Pep, Some for some reason not quite getting it right. But yeah, Haaland is a is a freak. Um, Haaland is a, a generational center forward and he will function well in any team, in any setup.
1: Well, there we go. Maybe that's a, a good way to end and, and we can see what ends up happening with city and, and Bayern Munich, I suppose, based on, and, and even Liverpool uh, for the remainder of the remainder of the season. But yeah, Raf, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and, and, get, and, you know, some really interesting insights into German football and, and the German team overall as well.
2: Thanks for having me.